All right, everybody, welcome back to the Fist News Studio. Another week in review. I am back. After a couple of weeks, I'm a little flat, so you'll have to bear with me this week as I kind of recalibrate from two weeks at the beach with my family. And I want to just point out real quickly, as I noted prior to leaving, two weeks at the beach with family sounds relaxing, but I can tell you chasing my kids up and down the eastern seaboard gets a little hairy, a little dicey. you got to do some pretty quick head counts there. But uh, anyway, glad to be back. we got a ton of stuff to cover. We're going to dive right into it. We've got a big story, obviously, the verdict in the Greg Leon trial. Guilty. A guilty verdict here. We're going to have Dylan Nolan, who covered this trial brilliantly for us over the last three weeks, and including on this program, he's going to walk us through all of the key points on that here in just a second. We're also going to talk about another, another horrific tragedy out of Colleton County, South Carolina. This county's just gone through the ringer, folks, with the First the Murdochs and now the Green Pond Massacre. Six dead. We're going to tell you all about uh, what's happening in that case and some potential problems as it relates to whether or not the suspect in that case was shown some of the judicial leniency that continues to plague the Palmetto State. Last but not least, we're going to tell you the story about a young woman whose body found in the middle of the road in Charleston. Thankfully, not dead, but unresponsive. We're going to tell you her story and what you can do to help the family in that case, find answers. All that and more heading your way on the Week in Review. All right, so for the last few weeks, one of the big stories we've been covering here at Fitz News is the murder trial of Greg Leon. This is the Mexican restaurateur who has been a huge success here in the Midlands region of South Carolina. His San Jose restaurants, just a staple here in the Midlands region of the Palmetto State. But seven years ago on Valentine's Day, Greg Leon put a tracker on his wife's Mercedes SUV, followed her to a parking lot at a John Deere dealership off of Interstate 20, flung open the door to a Toyota Tundra that had been purchased by Rachel Leon for her lover, Arturo Bravo, and Greg Leon, on that evening in question, shot and killed Arturo Bravo in the back of that Toyota Tundra. Now, this case has been waiting to go to trial for years. There's been all sorts of controversy leading up to it. It's received national attention, including a big spread in the Los Angeles Times. But Dylan Nolan, leading into this trial, the man at the very center of this story, Greg Leon, you said looking at his demeanor, watching him as he entered the courtroom for the first time, man without a care in the world. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Greg's family, after he was convicted, surprised, that's the, the verdict that we'll get to here, the news this week, but... His family said that he was there to have the justice system do its work, and it, it seemed like that to me. It seemed like he was there for whatever outcome uh, he might receive, but that he was confident that once the jury heard his side of the story, that he would be walking the streets. As this trial unfolded, though, and this was not a normal trial. We had expectations coming into it, but this was a trial that had uh, you know, changed testimony that material impact, materially impacted the prosecution's case. Uh, it had a mistrial uh, motion, which was overturned by the judge in this case, Walton McLeod. Dylan, as you start to finish gavel to gavel on this thing, and obviously we'll get to the verdict and your thoughts on that, but as this trial began, looking at Greg Leon and the allegations against him, what, what were the big issues here? The state obviously had to prove not only the murder, but what's the big component of it? So in South Carolina, we don't have degrees of murder. There's no first degree or second degree. In South Carolina, for a prosecutor to get a murder conviction, they have to prove that you killed somebody, which in this case, this all happened on the John Deere dealership surveillance video. So 
that component was most definitely satisfied, you know, from, from the very first day of the trial. But you have to prove that they did it with something called malice aforethought. And that means that this is not a spare-of-the-moment activity. Um, one example that the prosecutors gave for something that might give you a manslaughter charge is if you walked in on your wife having an affair, a very similar situation, but you didn't expect this at all, and you react uh, violently and kill somebody. What is different and what prosecutors were able to successfully argue in this case is that Mr. Leon um, likely knew that his wife was having an affair, went to the scene to address that situation in a violent way, and, and ended up killing Arturo Bravo. It was premeditation, basically. Very, yeah. Coming, coming to the scene with the intent to kill, that necessarily m- means murder in South Carolina. Walk us through how they did that. And before we get into, I guess, those details, tell us a little bit about the two lawyers that were leading uh, sure. the cases here. 11th Circuit Solicitor Rick Hubbard, uh, operating out of the Lexington County Courthouse in this trial. Um, he's a, a staunch trial attorney. He, he was watching everything that was going on in the courtroom like a hawk. His uh, deputy, who I think prepared a lot of this case, Suzanne Mays, she uh, called a lot of the state's first witnesses. She pulled a lot of important facts out on uh, direct testimony. But Solicitor Hubbard was really shining uh, while the defense made their case. He was really aggressive in cross-examining the defense's witnesses and making sure that the case that the state laid out in the first week kind of survived through through the defense testimony and uh, held up through his closing arguments, which I think that's where he really shined because he did not let any of those elements of evidence that were introduced in the first week, which might have slipped from the juror's mind in, in the intervening two weeks, because as you mentioned, there was this whole mistrial debacle that, you know, caused almost a week-long delay in the trial. So he made sure that that were, was on the jurors' minds yesterday as they went into deliberations. And it only took them just under three hours to come back with a verdict. And I know I, I saw some people on social media were surprised. And I think that Solicitor Hubbard's work in laying all of that out right before they went in, kind of made their work easy because, as I just said, in South Carolina, there are two things that you have to prove to prove a murder case. And that's one, that somebody was killed. Okay, that was easy. And the state laid out a lot of compelling evidence that Leon likely knew what was going on. I mean, we have the GPS tracker you mentioned. His wife and Arturo Bravo were communicating publicly on Facebook. That's something that I think most reasonable people um, would would see. And by the way, the state demonstrated that Leon was a Facebook user. He himself said that he used the platform for 30 to 40 minutes a day when he took the stand. Um, and something else that's really important that came up on closing that Hubbard did a really good job of pointing out was the fact that Leon and even the d- paths of argument that his defense team chose indicated that he's, he has malice towards Arturo Bravo even still. Mm-hmm. So it's not very hard to make that malice argument when the defendant himself takes the stand and is blaming the person he shot seven years later. And you talked about that app uh, or the the tracker. That tracker had an app with it, and they had Mm -hmm. video of Greg Leon looking at the app, and as soon as he sees where they are leaving immediately, uh, Hubbard made a pretty good case that that was premeditation. But I don't want to make it sound like this was, you know, Hubbard running the show. I think defense attorney Jack Swirling did as good as one can given the situation that his client put him in. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think his client did him any help in in making a self-defense claim when he 
pretty nakedly attempted to uh, elicit false testimony from the former roommate, and I don't think he knew this, but also former lover of the man that he shot. Um, this person went to the state law enforcement division, wore a wire, and recorded this whole thing. And, of course, the jury heard all of this. Wow. So defense attorney swirling, while I think he was – if he was given a better set of circumstances, could have probably successfully made a self-defense case in this situation. If you don't have the premeditation evidence, if you don't have the tampering after, I just think it was too much for him to overcome. Let me ask you this. You watched the jurors throughout this trial, and obviously in the Murdoch trial, one of the things we were able to do being in the courtroom was see the reaction of the jurors to certain evidence, certain Mm -hmm. testimony, certain exchanges even. Let me ask you this. When you were watching those jurors throughout this trial, how important was that witness tampering component to their perception of this case? I have to commend the jury in this case. They were very attentive. I didn't notice anybody on the jury that was, you know, I mean, sometimes you see jurors sleeping. You see people just (laughs) obviously off in la-la land. I mean, they look like they're at a tennis match during cross-examinations because their heads (laughs) were going back and forth. And that's what you want to see if you're an attorney, or uh, if you're the judge, because the last thing you want is for somebody to be able to come after the case and say, look, this juror wasn't even paying attention the whole time. Right. So they, they were paying attention to everything. But that day in particular, this witness tampering testimony, it kind of threw the case into like a telenovela love triangle kind of thing, because suddenly you have the victim whose lover was wearing a wire to incriminate her lover's killer. I mean, if... If these jurors were sitting there not on the jury, I think they would still have been interested to watch all of this. But they were watching that with rapt attention. And I, how could you not? And that that hurt Leon in your estimation with the jury? I mean, in, in what way in a murder case, it, you attempting to slander the name of the person that you shot, that's never going to help you. And these weren't just garden variety slanders. Either. These were these some... were extremely graphic uh, allegations, rape allegations, but perhaps more important than the graphic horrific allegations. Was Which the, were false. There's no evidence that these things are true, correct. Um, was the allegation that they wanted to plant that he always carried a gun on him. Which I think if I'm a member of the jury, I'm thinking, okay, you're trying to falsify testimony that he always had a gun on him. And that's obviously so that you can justifiably say, I thought he had one when I shot him. But there was an opening for defense. Now, let's talk about this a little bit, because obviously the premeditation, prosecutors did a good job establishing that. This witness tampering angle, clearly, as you mentioned. Not good for Mr. Leon. Not good at all. But there was, and Jack Swirling, a very adept attorney, as you noted. did. And Alyssa Wilson, his second in command, was the one who took the crucial cross testimony here of the state's forensic pathologist, who they assumed was going to testify that um, Mr. Bravo's arm was raised at the time of the shooting. Well, walk us through this part of it. Sure. She, she was expected to testify that his arm was raised at the time of the shooting. This was consistent with the defense's theory that he might have been reaching for a weapon. She identified a small bruise to, like adjacent to the gunshot wound, which is called a slap wound. And it's called that because the flesh will literally slap uh, another part of the body when a bullet goes through you. So say you have your arm down at your side and you're shot... Uh, underneath your armpit, on the other side of your armpit, there might be a bruise from the, the bullet literally making your flesh bubble up as it passes through. It's, it's rather gross, but it is something that forensic pathologists can use to identify your body positioning while you were shot. The problem is she didn't identify this 
bruise when she was conducting her autopsy. She identified it looking over photos in preparation for the trial. And she didn't communicate this adequately to the solicitor's office, who in turn could not communicate this to the defense team. So the solicitor testified that he only learned about this in the hour and a half trial prep that he had with her over the lunch break leading up to her testimony. Which gives him a difficult decision. What do you do if you're Rick Hubbard in that case? Well, what he did was put her on the stand and let the defense impeach her right there in the moment. And that turned out to be a smart choice because by choosing to impeach her in front of the jury, the defense uh, loses some of their right to say this was inappropriate because by taking that, you know, dangling apple right there in the moment and cashing in on that, they can't then go to the judge and say the the jury shouldn't have heard about this because clearly they thought that it would be better to take that punch than it would be to take it to the judge and say, what's going on here? Well, let me ask you this, because obviously the jury was excused during the entire debate over the the mistrial motion, because Jack Swirling, obviously, when critical testimony is changed or or amended in the days leading up to the trial, obviously, that's a huge deal. Yeah, mid-trial. Yeah. So, obviously, he makes a motion for a mistrial. Do you believe the fact that the defense sought to impeach the forensic pathologist, do you think that was a big factor in McLeod's decision not to grant the mistrial? No, I think that just judging off of his comments when he um, denied the motion, I think it more came down to the materiality of that testimony. And, you know, he, he's been doing this for a while. He knows that what that decision for the jurors is eventually going to come down to in this case is a lot less to do with the positioning of Bravo's body when he's in the car and a lot more to do with did Greg Leon go to that scene looking to kill his wife's lover? Because if Greg Leon did, he clearly killed his wife's lover. And if he thinks that the central issue of this case is going to be whether jurors believe that it was premeditated, then Mr. Le- or, uh, Mr. Bravo could have been doing jumping jacks in the car. Yeah, his arm positions are relevant. It doesn't matter. At that point, yeah. He, and he said if this ends up becoming material in the case moving down the road, then we can reevaluate this motion. And, of course... The defense has every right to take that up on appeal. But I can completely understand why in that moment he allowed the case to continue because that testimony, uh, which was impeached in front of the jury, which was re-litigated for almost the remainder of the trial, you know, we kept hearing about this arm from both the state's witnesses, or sorry, but from both the state's reply witness and from the defense's witnesses. This this became like the central point of the trial. Mm-hmm. But if you pull the lens back and look at the bigger picture, at what the jury had to consider when they were in that room, it's actually a pretty small part. Yeah. They were more focused on why was he there and what was he thinking when he was there. I mean, I can't tell you what happened in that room, uh, mm-hmm. although we might be working on that. Uh, but I can tell you that that's what the law says matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Dylan, let me, uh, first of all, I read all your articles in this case. I mean, you had to make them turn making... into English through your editing. <laughs> no, but I got to tell you, it was amazing to read your coverage because these were in-depth stories, not short stories. I mean, you're not getting the television uh, 30-second blurb. You're not getting the 600 words that you Man, get Man, I was watching some of these TV reporters during this trial. I think I ought to become a TV guy. That seems, well, seems a little easier. Well, you, uh, you dug deep on this in each one of these stories, and the one thing I do want to commend you on – I would read these stories. I had no idea at any point in the three weeks of this trial what you were thinking. 
So uh, you did your job as a journalist very well. But let me ask you this. Now that it's over, and obviously you're still going to be covering it, but now that the trial's over, and I asked you this the other night when we were just talking, what would you have done as a juror in this case? If this set of facts comes to you and you're back in that room deliberating, what would you have done in the case of Greg Leon? It's interesting because from a personal perspective, you know, I spent close to three weeks covering this trial and spent a lot of time around the Leon family and... I don't. I can't imagine it was lost to the jurors seeing his family's presence there throughout that whole trial, um, and some of their remarks after conviction were. It, it's typical. I mean, it was like you're at a funeral. It, it really is like you just watch them watch their loved one die and have to deal with that. That being said, Mr. Bravo has a family too that had to deal with his literal death, and don't think I'm discrediting that. But I think I w- that would weigh heavily on me if I were in that jury room. Um, but ultimately, if if you're going to do what the judge charged you to do, which is apply the law, I think it, it wouldn't be too difficult, which is why I understand why they came back in only a couple hours. Uh, the law is pretty clear, and I think the state pretty clearly articulated uh, their arguments on multiple fronts for premeditation, and I... I just think that would be my central focus if I were in that jury room. And I think that would be what drove the conversation. There were, you know, weeks of other things that would be playing in my mind. And I think I might go home and even feel bad about it. But if you're going to go in and apply the law, I don't really think there was any question. Unless you truly believe that his claims that he had no clue. If you if you took Leon's uh, testimony as credible, which I would have personally had a really hard time doing because I didn't find his testimony credible that he didn't have any idea what was going on. I just find it completely unbelievable that somebody, I mean, in the in the hours leading up to the killing, Arturo Bravo was calling his wife multiple times while they were sitting at the dinner table together. And he says, oh, I had no clue that there was an affair going on. I mean, how many times have you been having dinner with your wife and she gets multiple phone calls from some man you don't know and you don't notice that? Mm-hmm. And, and there was all, multiple other instances where I, I just have a very hard time believing that he didn't know what was going on when he rolled up to the scene that night. And that was the key, making the jury convinced that he did know. Well, the, the prosecutors know that regardless of whether the jury thinks that Arturo Bravo Santos is a bad guy or a good guy, whether they think that Mr. Leon is a bad guy or a good guy, no matter how many businesses he's built, no matter how many loving kids he has, those are the questions that it comes down to. And the defense was hoping that some of these other things might, you know, come into the jurors' minds. And that's, they're right. You know, when you have a jury trial in America, all it takes is one juror to say, uh, yeah. I, I believe Leon. Yeah. If somebody in that, you know, group of 12 had said, I believe Leon, we would be sitting here having a different discussion. But clearly they did not. Well, it was very, it reminded me almost like you said, one and 11. It takes us back to that Murdoch trial and that last second uh, dismissal of the juror who was inclined to believe Alec Murdoch in his murder trial. And Now, would she have, you know, after a strenuous discussion with 11 other people who disagreed, mm-hmm. have made it through to hang that jury? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Because yeah. I, I think the social dynamics in those situations are are clearly tilted in the prosecution's favor. Oh, absolutely. Well, Dylan, an amazing job. And if you follow this story, you know, this wasn't a murder mystery. Greg Leon admitted this 
in the uh, hours after the killing, acknowledged that he, in fact, shot his wife's lover is what he said on the 911 call. And, in fact, during that time, he was communicating with somebody we both know, a guy who's been taking a little bit of heat over the last couple of hours in the aftermath of this verdict, Eric Bland, who actually spoke on Leon's behalf. Um, Dylan Bland's been getting beat up a little bit on social media uh, by some who say that it's hypocritical for him to, uh, on the one hand, stand up for victims, but on the other hand, stand up for now a convicted killer. What's your take on the on the Bland controversy? Is there any merit to it? or? So a little backstory here is that um, Greg Leon was one of Eric Bland's longest clients. Uh, they started working together, I believe, in the 1990s. But more so than that, the two became really close personal friends. Um, Eric was the, the person that Greg called as he was leaving the crime scene, probably as reality was dawning on him uh, as to what he had just done. From uh, You know, this was an attorney-client privileged conversation, so we don't know exactly what was said. However, Greg called the police uh, directly after, so I would assume that Eric did the right thing and told him, look, man, you got to call the cops. Um, he did end up flinging the gun on the side of the road, but there's no evidence that Eric told him to do that. In fact, Eric... <laughs> came up and when he was asking the judge to uh, be lenient in his sentencing and and uh, characterized that as a mistake. I think Eric, you know, he's he's got the personal connection there to Greg as a friend. And by the way, Eric's not Greg's only friend. Um, one of Greg's other friends came up and testified that he, he and his family would have no place to live if it weren't for the fact that when his home was about to be foreclosed on, Greg uh, came in and stroked a check. And that, that's not out of character for him. Greg helps a lot of people that he works with. He helped a lot of people that he works with. So I can understand why somebody would be friends with him. He messed up. I, I truly believe that he committed premeditated murder. And I think, you know, he's going to have to serve his time for that. But I also don't fault Eric for being his friend. Mm. And I don't fault him for being his attorney. And I, don't, I see no evidence that he's acted improprietously in this case. Indeed. And uh, Greg Leon actually reached out to you a few times during the trial, too, didn't he, Dylan? Yeah, um, he approached me, I think, about two days into the trial, and he said, I'd like to speak with you after this. Uh, and I, and it sure sounded, you know, from the implication there that he thought we would be speaking across the table of one of his restaurants. And I, of course, said I would love to have the opportunity to speak with you because, of course, wouldn't you want to hear somebody's side of the story out of their own mouth? Of course, we, we got to hear from him on the stand, and what he said was not convincing enough for those jurors. So I won't be able to speak with Mr. Leon because the South Carolina Department of Corrections doesn't allow for uh, members of the media to interview him, but I, I still can write him a letter. Mm. So I, I will reach out to Mr. Leon, um, but I, I got to see him throughout the trial, and I think that around the second day of the state's testimony, you could tell there was a demeanor change when some things that were pretty damning got put in front of that jury. Was there an argument over the admissibility of that witness tampering evidence? It was almost, it felt like in that Murdoch trial, the admission of the financial crimes really sunk Alec Murdoch. And in this case, it feels to some extent, maybe maybe this witness tampering didn't sink Greg Leon in this case, but it certainly didn't help. Yeah, I actually think it might be more damning than the financial crimes were in the Murdoch trial. Uh, it, it was that bad because he was trying to directly plant evidence related to the man that he shot. I mean, it was it's pretty clear connection there. Um, but those battles happened before the trial started. Mm -hmm. That ruling was issued right before the trial mm -hmm. started. So 
uh, I think the defense team started this trial with a, a massive uh, loss. Yeah, because once that comes in, you're absolutely in a huge They're, they're fighting a real uphill battle from the moment that that came in. Indeed. Dylan Nolan, phenomenal job covering this trial. Thank you. Absolutely amazing work, and thank you for not only covering it as detailed as you did, but the way you did. Like I said, watching this for three weeks, uh, reading every article you wrote from the beach. Surfside. Yeah, no idea where you were coming from. That's the sign of a true uh, journalist. So excellent work there. Now we'll head on to our next segment where we're going to talk about another big case that is making huge headlines here in the Palmetto State. All right, so the July 4th holiday is supposed to be about family, about families coming together, spending time with each other, with their loved ones. But in Colleton County, South Carolina, one family's July 4th holiday turned into an unspeakable tragedy. On the morning of Sunday, July 2, 2023, six people were killed in Green Pond, South Carolina, as part of a stabbing arson incident at a home there in the Green Pond community, which is on that southern part of Colleton County. Now, the individual who has been accused in this crime has a lengthy criminal record, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, here is Colleton County Sheriff Buddy Hill walking through the details of this horrific Green Pond massacre. All right, thank you all for coming today. Um, we're here today to give information concerning the horrific event that occurred on July 2nd, 2023. Our 911 center received a call that a stabbing had occurred at 779 Folly Creek Lane, Green Pond, South Carolina. That the house was on fire and victims were still inside. When fire rescue and sheriff's office arrived, they found the home was fully engulfed in flames and the only surviving victim was outside the residence. Deputies were able to speak to the survivor who provided the first name and the description of the suspect and his vehicle. The surviving victim was treated at the scene for cuts and stabs and airlifted to a hospital. As soon as it became apparent that there were numerous victims deceased inside the residence and that there was an indication of criminal mischief, assistance was requested from SLED's arson team, crime scene unit, and regional agents. While on scene, detectives were able to uncover the last name of the suspect from a family member. He was identified as Ryan Leonard Manigo. It is my understanding that he is the brother-in-law of victim Michelle Marie Wright and father of Shariah Manigo, two of the victims. These two victims were identified as being in the house and deceased by the witness from what was described as stab wounds. We are currently waiting on positive ID on the other four victims through a pending autopsy. The suspect was detained near the scene and arrested shortly after detectives were able to confirm his last name. He was booked into the Calden County Sheriff's Office and charged with the attempted murder of the surviving juvenile victim. Solicitor Stone will go over these charges in a moment. Search warrants were obtained and executed on the suspect's home and vehicles by members of the Calde County Sheriff's Office and the State Law Enforcement Division. The evidence collected has been sent to the State Law Enforcement Division for analysis. At this time, we do not have a motive. This is a very active investigation, and as details emerge, we will forward them to the family and the media. 
I'd like to take an opportunity to thank the family because they were a tremendous help to us yesterday. They were able to provide us information. They were able to help us with the crowd, which was very large. And I ask that the public keep this family and our community in their prayers as we move forward. All right, so as we film this, there are two murder charges currently being faced by Ryan Leonard Manigo. And I want to put this picture up here. This is Manigo's daughter, 11-year-old Saria Manigo. She is one of the victims of this, again, stabbing arson incident. The other victim that has been publicly identified, 50-year-old Michelle Marie Wright. Now, two murder charges, obviously there are additional murder charges coming. There are four victims who have yet to be identified. We do know the names of most of those. However, withholding that until a positive identification is made by the Collin County Coroner's Office and charges formally filed by the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office. But one of the family members of one of those other victims spoke at a bond hearing that was held almost concurrently with the press conference that you just saw. And that family member said, and I quote, we wish you death. We wish you the death penalty, referring to Manigo. So obviously everyone's innocent until proven guilty in our criminal justice system, but some of the family members here obviously have made up their minds. But Sheriff Hill credited the family who was at that press conference with helping them. And obviously the story here of this 13-year-old girl who survived being stabbed, being in a house that was set on fire, managing to escape, providing law enforcement with the name of the suspect, with a description of him, with a description of his vehicle, all of those things instrumental, instrumental in helping law enforcement find and apprehend Ryan Leonard Manigo. Now, I mentioned in the outset, Manigo had a criminal history, and I want to talk a little bit about that now because it's very important. In 2008, accused of burglary, that one was not prosecuted by the office of Solicitor Stone. A few years later, in 2010, there was an armed robbery charge and some related charges which were dropped, but the armed robbery charge stuck. He was actually convicted, or pleaded guilty rather, served time in the South Carolina Department of Corrections, a little over two years, but it was a 15-year sentence, people, that was imposed by Judge Perry Buckner. However, Buckner suspended the vast majority of that, and he was released to probation in Collin County after, again, a little over two years. But had that full sentence been imposed, Manigo would have been in jail at the time that this savage stabbing and arson incident took place. But after his release, the crime wave continued. 2015, there was an arrest for kidnapping. That one also not prosecuted by the office of Duffy Stone. And then a few years later, a criminal sexual assault charge, which was listed as not indicted. So multiple crimes, serious crimes, violent crimes, and yet very little in the way of accountability. Now, in fairness to Solicitor Stone, we don't know the full story behind all of these charges. And as I mentioned, folks in our system, they're innocent until proven guilty. However, at first glance, this certainly has all the appearances of yet another judicial leniency situation here in South Carolina where the rights of victims and the interests of public safety take a back seat to a violent criminal's supposed rights. Now, I want, though, to be perfectly clear, because we've been very critical of Solicitor Stone in the past 
on this program on Fitz News. We have called him out, for example, his belated recusal in connection with the Murdoch murders case and some allegations there of, you know, prosecutorial, not misconduct, that's too strong a word, but remember, Alec Murdoch was a badge-carrying member of Duffy Stone's office for several years, and Murdoch's father, grandfather, obviously held that office for nearly a century. So there are some connections here that we're troubling, but we've reached out to Solicitor Stone because we want to hear the full story. We want to know about these prior charges involving Menigo, and we want to know, are there some rational explanations, some justifiable explanations as to why some of these serious charges were not pursued? Perhaps some evidence, state couldn't make a case, but we want to hear directly from Stone as to why, because we do believe, we do believe that everyone deserves the opportunity Again, to share their perspectives on this, Solicitor Stone, no different. So we have reached out to him, and Solicitor Stone has indicated that he will be getting back with us in response to some of those questions. So we do look forward to providing our audience with that full context, again, for the previous criminal record of Ryan Leonard Manigo. This is going to be a story that's going to drive national headlines, folks. I'm not saying it's going to be as big as the Murdochs. I'm not saying it's going to be the next big Colleton County murder saga, but the Green Pond Massacre, the lives that have been lost, and again, this tale of true heroism by this young 13-year-old girl who, by the way, remains in critical condition in the aftermath of this assault with multiple stab wounds. Again, just cannot imagine, cannot imagine what that family went through, but count on this news outlet to continue to bring you the very latest, not only on this story, but again, more importantly, every bit as importantly, on the system of justice which led up to this and hopefully the justice that this family will receive in its aftermath. All right, that is a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. But before we go, there's a story that we're following out of Charleston, South Carolina that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention. We just posted an article on it yesterday on Friday, but this is a story that we're going to be keeping up with because it's an unsolved mystery. It's a another body found in the road here in South Carolina. Luckily, this victim did not die. However, she is currently in critical condition in the intensive care unit at the Medical University of South Carolina. And I'm referring to Jen Drummond. She's a 34-year-old from James Island, South Carolina. Body was found in the middle of the road right outside her home on James Island. And at this point, police have really no conception of what happened. She suffered a fractured skull, multiple fractured vertebrae in her neck, uh, injuries all up and down her left side, uh, just was bleeding profusely from a blunt force trauma to the head. And she was discovered by a passerby who, as fate would have it, taking her parents to the airport that morning, uh, shortly before 6 a.m. on the morning of June 21 of this year. This woman went a different way to the airport, taking her parents, a way she doesn't usually go, and miraculously found Jen Drummond there in the road, called for help, stayed with Drummond until first responders arrived. But just an absolutely awful situation. Can't imagine someone doing this and leaving the scene. We didn't, again, though, don't know, was this a, was this a car vehicular impact? We, we, we're not sure. Police, again, haven't said. They've released some grainy pictures. And I want to put these up here real quick. We'll rotate through them. If you're watching on our YouTube stream here, you can see Got these three grainy surveillance pictures of vehicles, one an SUV, one a car, one appears to be a truck. 
uh, leaving that scene there on James Island. But I wanted to raise this case because if anyone has any information about what happened to Jen Drummond, we want you to reach out to Master Deputy Colt Arrington. We're going to put all this information up here on the screen. Master Deputy Colt Arrington with the Charleston County Sheriff's Department, that number 843-202-1700, or you can call Crime Stoppers uh, of the Lowcountry. That's 843-554-1111. Those numbers, again, we're going to leave there up on the screen. But again, a, another unsolved situation here of a body found in the middle of the road, and thank God, again, that that passerby uh, Katie is her last name, Laura Katie, I believe, found her there on the road, called for help. But hopefully we will get an answer. Uh, the family of Jen Drummond, incidentally, has announced an $8,000 reward, by the way. So anyone who has information, call those numbers we just gave so that we can get some answers for Drummond and her family. Thank you again for tuning in for another edition of the Weekend Review. And before we go, extra thanks. Not only to Dylan Nolan, who did an amazing job covering the Leon trial, but to Jen Wood for her reporting while I was gone for the last couple weeks, to Mark Powell for his work, everybody at Fist News stepping up, getting it done. Prelo Alexander, our guest columnist who loves to uh, poke the woke, I call it. But uh, just great work by everybody while I was gone. I'm glad to be back. Can't wait to dive into it as we continue to bring you the latest news here in South Carolina and hold those in charge accountable.